0: Our scripture reading today is from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. I'll give you a moment or two to locate them if you'd like to follow along. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If, you God, if God is for us, who can be against us? and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors,
1: So I was doing the math uh, this week, and I realized the next time I preach, I will have been here for uh, right at a year, just over a year, and uh, I appreciate that none of you have chased me away with uh, torches and pitchforks yet, Um, though if I keep singing, I bet that will be the case. So, um... (laughs) uh, but but I, I get a lot of people who have who always ask me like hey What's something that you've learned since you've been up there like what's something unexpected you learned and I always say the thing that I Almost always start with is the people up here love mowing like it's like a it's like a big deal up here like They love mowing. It's like the official pastime of Northern Illinois. I can't believe how much you guys like to mow um, so so you have to understand, though, like, I, I, like I had a, I've had a mowing business twice in my life, right? Like in high school and then when I was uh, doing some other things not too long ago with Tristan, we had our own mowing business. So so I've pushed a lot of lawnmowers around in my life, um, you know, residential, weed eating. I've, I've done a bunch of it. But, but mowing in West Texas is different. I'll just say it's— it, uh, First, it's going to be 100 degrees, no matter whether you do it at 9 a.m. or in the afternoon. It just doesn't matter. And there's going to be a 30 to 40 mile an hour wind the whole time. So it feels like you're in a hair dryer as you're mowing. Um, and there's going to be dust everywhere because the grass will still grow, but it's dry. So I don't know how that works, but you just, you know, cough up dirt all day long when you, when you mow in West Texas. So, you know, the grass is really rough. It's scratchy. Um, it's like Bermuda and fescue. Like it's, it's not, it's not enjoyable things to do. And nobody likes mowing uh, in West Texas. But, but I have to say, after being here a year, I'm starting to enjoy mowing, because it's a different kind of deal. First, you know, it's normally riding something, because there's just so much grass. You can't push a mow, you know, can't push mower around here. So, um, but it's, you know, it's a little bit cooler normally, and and, and, the, and the grass is green, which is an unbelievable thing to see, gr- green grass. So it's, just, it's, it's definitely much more enjoyable as f- uh, for mowing. And this morning we're going to see mowing in the book of Nahum uh, in verse 12 of chapter 1. But it is not a pleasant, enjoyable kind of mowing. Um, so we, we sang a, a Johnny Cash song just a few minutes ago, uh, but there's a different... Uh, song of his that describes the, the mowing of Nahum better. Uh, and if you know it, the title of the song is God's Gonna Cut You Down. You might just call it Mow You Down. Here is one lyric from the song just to get a feel for what it's like. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. That's the kind of mowing we're gonna be talking about this morning. So just kind of prepare yourself. And, and and i i really love johnny cash um, and i'm i'm thankful that my family's here because they're the ones who helped introduce me to to both love of johnny cash and country music and uh and and also the the, the faith of, of johnny cash and so uh you know if, if you followed his life you know that kind of towards the end of his life he he became more and more interested in uh kind of talking about the end times and, and kind of as a warning for those, hey, don't reject the Lord because the end is coming. Uh, there's a, another song called The Man Comes Around, which is uh, truly apocalyptic kind of stuff. So if you like Johnny Cash, you need to hear some of his, the later stuff in his career. But uh, the chickens are coming to roost in today's passage, if you'd rather uh, like that phraseology. We're going to see God declare a guilty verdict against those who do evil. Uh, and his, his judgment against evil is to mow it down. And so let's pray together as we examine uh, the book of Nahum. Father, would you guide us in your word this morning? Give us wisdom. Help us to hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you'll turn to the book of Nahum, uh, kind of towards the end of the Old Testament, Um, it's, it's not a big book, so it's kind of tucked away in there. We're gonna, we're gonna read, uh, chapter one. And it's, it's got 15 verses, so we'll read that together. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. And if you like Johnny Cash lyrics, the whirlwind is in the thorn bush. I don't know if you remember that line. But anyway, that's where he gets that from. So, his way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation, who can endure the heat of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many... They will be mowed down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. So this morning we have one of the, the more difficult books in all of Scripture to deal with, and uh, in, in, in the minor prophets as well. It is written entirely about Assyria especially Nineveh, which is the capital at this time in history, the capital of Assyria. And, and we've talked about Assyria, uh, Nineveh, before. Remember when we started this series on the minor prophets, we started with the book of Jonah because it was the most well-known, but also it was a great way to kind of see uh, the work of, of, of God's mercy. Um, and, and that takes place in about 775 BC, and, and they're, they're told of their wickedness. And so um, remember, they did repent and they believed and they received mercy from the Lord. Un, un, you know, to the sh- dismay of Jonah, they received mercy. But we do know in history that that repentance doesn't last very long. They, they go back to their evil ways of terror and, and murder very soon after. And, and they become the most powerful uh, nation in the world and they conquered everyone around them. We we have talked about how they destroyed Israel in 722 BC, and and the things that they did to the men, women, and children, we'll just say, are truly, truly barbaric. Um, and and so after that, they decide to come after Judah. Remember the southern nation. We'll look at the pictures in a second. But um, we briefly mentioned last week um, that there was that Assyria turns it turned its eyes on Judah, and in seven. 701 B.C., so 20 years after the destruction of Israel, they say, hey, you're next and here we come. And they begin to invade and, and they conquer 46 cities of Judah including the the, the great military city of Lachish. And um, if you really like history, you need to look up the images of the siege of Lachish. They're fascinating and they're terrible. And, and I want to show you just one uh, real quick. I think I've... so. So they found these in, in the rubble of, of Assyria. Later, they found this as the siege of Lachish. And so the Jews are up in the, 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 the castle walls, if you will, up in the fortress. And all the guys that are pointing like this are the Assyrians. And basically what they did was they built a mountain. They built a massive siege ramp to get up because Lachish was on the top of a hill. And they built these giant siege ramps. Um, and I, I wish I had a pointer, but I don't. But so you see archers... And then there's little, almost look like candy canes. Those are torches that the, 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 the uh, Jews are throwing at. Um, there's kind of these curved looking things. Um, basically, you can call them a tank because they're just an armored vehicle with men and massive weapons on them. And the Assyrians kind of invented a weapon. Uh, they called them siege engines, but we'll just call them a tank. And they, they were able to, to go right up to the walls and start knocking the walls down. And they were trying to set them on fire with throwing torches at them. Uh, and it didn't work. It, it was unsuccessful. So can we go to the next picture? Here's a, a better, more lifelike depiction of it. And so if you go kind of look up to the top right, you can see what they made as tanks. They were just totally, in, in, you know, protected. And the men were in them. And they got right up to the walls and knocked them down. Um, And it was just an incredible victory by the Assyrians. But so uh, in 2 Kings 18 and 19 now, once they've gotten Lachish destroyed, they come towards Jerusalem and they start mocking the God of Israel, the God of the Jews. And um, uh, Isaiah tells King Hezekiah, hey, go pray, go fast, go repent, and weep. God will not allow uh, Jerusalem to fall and, and so there's this miraculous story in, in eight, uh, Second Kings 18 and 19. And, um, and so that was a, a man by the name of King Sennacherib. And then after, after he can't take Jerusalem, he goes home. And he is assassinated by his son, Esarhaddon. And he reigns for a while and just continues to, to wipe out other nations. And then his son is a guy named Ashurbanipal, which may sound a little familiar. And they are amazing. And they go and destroy Egypt. Uh, and they, uh, they conquer the city of Thebes, which everybody considered to be the strongest city in the world. Uh, they defeated it. And so they are now the baddest dudes on the planet with no rival in the, in the mid-600s. And, and it is very soon after the battle of, of Thebes that God is going to speak through our prophet this morning, Nahum, to Assyria. But he's not just speaking to Assyria. He is uh, speaking so that Judah will hear. Um, and, and Judah is the, the living, the, re- the remnant, the surviving hope. Um, and he's going to tell that surviving hope that he's about to deal out justice to the enemies of God. To keep hope because justice is coming. So um, th- that is a key to understanding this book, is to say, well, he's speaking to Nineveh, but, but he's doing so so that Judah can hear. Now, Nahum is not uh, a heartwarming book in any way. It is no nonsense. It is uh, only three chapters long, but the message is unmistakable about what is to come. We we think it's written about 660 B.C., um, and so this would have been the end of Judah's most wicked king, Manasseh. Uh, So if you look up, you can see Nahum there right under the 650. You've got Josiah, Jehoiakim, uh, and... Uh, he's, but he's going to kind of start stuff in Manasseh. So you could actually move him a little bit to the left on that map. Um, so um, we know that Ni- uh, Nineveh is going to be des- totally destroyed in 612 B.C. And Assyria uh, ce- ceases to exist by 605. Uh, and they are destroyed by uh, Mede and Babylon together. And so... Um, but, but for Nahum to give a message in 660 BC about the destruction of Assyria would be, would be sort of like someone from Poland talking about the destruction of Germany in 1939 that sounded nonsense. You've just gotten whooped and whooped and whooped. What in the world do you have any business talking about you know, the destruction of Germany? It's not gonna happen. It would have sounded crazy, and it did. Um, Nahum I- is in many ways a sequel to Jonah, So you can just think of those books together or some think of them as bookends uh, about kind of the, the, the business of God. Um, Jonah shows God's compassion and mercy uh, to those who will turn to him for refuge and, and in repentance. Nahum shows how God responds to those who refuse to turn to the Lord. To those who want to be their own gods, who want to live their own way, that is, this is what is coming for you. It's interesting the name Nahum means comforter. And the idea is that that Nahum was written as a comfort to, to Judah to talk about the, the destruction of Assyria. So, so, you know, maybe again it's, it's helpful to think about it in modern terms. So, so if a letter went to Poland during World War II to say, hey listen, you know, the Nazis who have terrorized you and, and taken everything over, hey, they're going to be wiped out. They're going to be annihilated. Um, It would have been a message of comfort for those who had been brutalized, right? Okay, they're going to be destroyed. They're not going to prevail in the end, right? Or God is saying this is not the end of the story. Uh, And so I've heard some people joke that, that there's one simple message in Nahum with three levels of severity. And so chapter one is, you know, comfort to Judah for like that long, and then, uh, a, mess, a PG message of destruction, and then chapter 2 is a PG-13 version of destruction for Nineveh, and then uh, chapter 3 is, is the explicit version of destruction that's coming for Nineveh. That's, that's kind of all that this whole book is, and so it really does escalate if you read it. It just gets worse and worse, um, and so we're just staying in chapter 1 because I think that's all that's needed for this morning, but you'll get the idea, I promise. So just make a couple of things, uh, point them out that I think are noteworthy, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of try to put it together a little bit. So, you know, as the book begins, it, Nahum describes God, and we get this image of a warrior who will do the fighting. This God king who is a warrior who will do the fighting. And, um, and we hear in verse 8 of chapter 1 that God is going to destroy Nineveh with a flood. God's going to destroy Nineveh with the flood. And it's an interesting statement um, that, that would make no sense at the time. Um, but, but as I said, there's a, in just a few decades, there's an army from, uh, from Mede and, and Babylon that will form together to, to take uh, Nineveh. So I want to show you a couple of pictures uh, just of what Nineveh looked like at this time. It was the most beautiful place in the world. Uh, and, and some say the, the hanging gardens of Babylon were actually a mistranslation. It was the hanging gardens of Nineveh. That, that, and that was the beautiful wonder of the world was actually here. We don't, we don't know. But, but this is what it would have looked like inside uh, Ashurbanipal's uh, building. If we can go to the next one. Uh, they had built a moat around their city. And then these giant walls. And they say, they say the, the walls were so big that they would have chariot races and they could run three chariots on top, three chariots wide on top and, and, and run chariot races on the, on the top of the wall. So that tells you how big and how thick the walls were. Just it was the place to be. And so to say, oh, that's going to be flooded didn't make any sense. It was going to be destroyed by a flood. Well, so um, when, when Babylon decides to invade, they recognize, hey, there's no way we can d- take these walls over. And some smart guy had an idea. Hey, there's a river a few miles away what if we just redirected the river? Uh, that would be easier than trying to fight these guys in this wall. And so they did. They dug a canal and then connected it and redirected the river to the base of those walls. And so it took them some time, as you can imagine. They had s- captured slaves and they built. they built a river and redirected it. And then so about after a month, this place looked like the Everglades. And there's pretty good documented history about all of this. And eventually after, you know, just turning their fortress into a swamp, the walls started kind of getting, you know, crooked and starting to deteriorate a little bit, and a a wall, a hole opened up. And so now that thing turned into a giant fishbowl, because the river is now getting through that one spot in the wall. They didn't even have to fight. They just waited till the thing flooded, and then they went in, and and it was a a major, major battle, a major victory. So God if you want to just say predicted, the most unlikely of outcomes about how this place would be destroyed. They were destroyed by a flood, um, which, is, which is really interesting. So, okay. So then uh, if you go to verse 13 of chapter 2, God says something serious. And, and it's all serious. It's all military language about war. But this one is, to me, is terrifying in its simplicity. He says, says I am against you. I am against you. And again, if you're Judah, this is going to, there's going to be some comfort in this. Um, and you and I would be no different to hear that God is against our enemies. Uh, because, you know, we wonder, just like Judah did, how come evil prospers? How come bad guys seem to win? What, what is that? I don't understand that. And so for God to say, I am against you, would have, been, would have felt comforting and um, you know, because we ask, God, do you even care about the things that are happening all around us? You know, it's, it's natural to wonder those kinds of things, because we live in this terrible, imperfect, sinful world. That, you know, a world that's ravaged by evil, ravaged by sinful people. And so to hear that God is angry and he's going to do something about it, I, I find comfort in hearing that, knowing that... Um, you know, the drug dealers and, and human traffickers and warmongers and, you know, the corrupt businessmen and world leaders that, that we all know and experience, we, to know that they're going to be dealt with, to hear, I am against you, we, we, we want that. We want to hear it. And it is, there is something comforting about it. Um, what, but what I find interesting is this, that everyone I know, in, in, myself included, we, we love it when justice is served on other people we love it when we see god's justice served but what do i want when when it's directed at me i really want mercy and i really want grace i don't want justice for my wrongdoings right and and so we're going to come back to that in just a second but 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 just take a little bit of note and so so I have to say that I was surprised because I, I really th- assumed this would be a simple sermon as I, as I worked through it because it's, it's a short book about angry judgment. Um, but, but I've actually found it to be the opposite. There, there's so many things that this book deals with. Um, but I, so I really am just going to have to focus in on verses 2 through 8 of, of chapter 1 um, and, and just kind of put some things together from that. So first thing you need to know, as we've talked about in this Minor prophet series, it's the same as Sin is a really big deal. And, and and God is both jealous and angry about sin and about the the sin of the world. And so we have talked about this in other books, but um, but I think it's important because I, I know in myself and, and maybe you as well, because of the, of the way that our culture talks about it. I think of jealousy when I hear it. I think of the bad thing. Or why is God jealous? That sounds, is he, is he, is he, you know, petty? What, what is going on here? What's this thing with God being jealous? Um, But, but I want you to know that jealousy in the way that God is, is a, is a good thing. And so we could just say that jealousy like this is, is, is the jealousy that one feels about something that is theirs. And so if I went outside and started throwing rocks at your car, okay, the feeling that you would have you know, to go through a range of emotions, but all of those could be, could be put under some sort of category of jealousy. And that is, I've got to protect my car, I've got to stop him from doing what he's doing, why is he doing this, right? There would be obvious frustration. That, that's the kind of jealousy that's, that's good and relevant here, right? this something that's mine, and, and you don't have a right to do what you're doing to it. Um, so if somebody was messing with your spouse, if somebody was messing with your family, Right? That, that desire to protect, that de- desire to defend, that's a good kind of jealousy. And, and so we need to just kind of understand that when we talk about God. It's, it's about loyalty. It's about protection. And when we are unfaithful to him, he is jealous for us. And when others mess with his people, as Assyria has been doing, he is jealous in a way that produces righteous anger. So just that's the kind of jealousy we're, we're talking about here. So um, next thing I want to say is when we look at verse 3, we see several things. And, and one is that God is absolutely sovereign. It says that he is great in power. And, and the details of God's sovereignty in the minor prophets and how he works through the events of the world, or it, it's, a, it's a, just really too much for discussing here. But just to su- suffice to say that nothing, not Egypt, not Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, any king, any power, there's nothing that is beyond his reach and discipline and his ability to control the events of what they're doing. God is sovereign over all of that and he can do whatever he wants with any nation, with any people, anytime. Uh, So God is sovereign. Third thing we still see in verse three here is that God is slow to anger and and he will by no means clear the guilty, it says. He will by no means clear the guilty. And that means that judgment is coming. For those that are guilty, judgment uh, is on the horizon. And so you, somebody might say, well, those first three points, they're, they're, they're bad news for evildoers, if you want to kind of interpret it that way, depending on how you're going to view verse 7 in a second, to say that might kind of be the bad news, and it gets delivered in the beginning. Um, because you know, as we look at verse 7, it really is the only only mention of redemption, the only kind of redeeming sounding thing in the whole book of Nahum. So if you're looking for good news this morning, here it is. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Right, just this little side note in the midst of judgment, 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 but the Lord is good and a stronghold to those who trust in Him. And so we'll just say we see the protection and care of the Lord on his people for those who cry out to help, for help to him. And, and just kind of one last thing that I see that's worth mentioning, and that is in verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, with, But with an overwhelming flood he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And if you were paying attention a minute ago, I said that that, that verse predicted the flood of Nineveh in 6.12. He predicts the flood in 6.12. But but I think, and a lot of experts think, this is one of those places where, where there's dual prophecy uh, in, in verse 8. And so uh, it's going to get fulfilled kind of later in Scripture. I, I went to Colorado this week and, and was at some denominational meetings, and, and there was kind of a, a gruff guy talking about, you know, who can be pastors and ordaining people. And, and he said something to the effect of, Anyone who gets ordained in our denomination ought to be able to preach the gospel out of any minor prophet book. They ought to be able to preach the gospel out of any minor prophet book. And I laughed because I'm sitting there, kind of taking notes on Nahum as I'm in this meeting, and going, "Well, okay, I guess I'd better figure this one out, right?" Um, <laughs> This is, just so you know, this is one of the two or three books that some commentators say, Well, there's really no use in this book for people today. There's really nothing relevant for us in the book of Nahum. That's one interpretation. I I disagree, but that is one interpretation you will hear. Uh, And so some people would say, this is not a book you can find the gospel in. But I I think the gospel is in verse 8. You see, God has promised that he's going to make an end of his adversaries. And, and, I, and I think this is a promise of the big work of redemption that he's doing, you know, through the span of history, through the span of the whole world. He is going to make an end of his adversaries, and he's going to do it, as we know, through Jesus. You, you see, we saw just a second ago, this, there's this idea where God said, I am against you. And, and, and that's a statement that I think he could make about any one of us. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion against him, he could say, I am against you, and he has every right to make an end of us, as he is going to do in Nineveh. And and so I I, I do hope you understand that our sins deserve the punishment that Nineveh actually received. And we always try to downplay our sins, right? Wanting justice to, to be served on other people, but... You know, so the, the sins committed by others, justice, but ours, that's not a big deal. I'm a good person. It really wasn't that, that big of a deal what I did. I had decent intentions, right? Jesus came to do something about all sin, about our sin. His life and death and resurrection fulfilled the punishment and judgment that we're requiring. And so the, the good news of the gospel does come in verse 8 here. And, and I find that it so uh, so encouraging. Jesus made an end to his adversaries, which were sin and death. And the work of Christ is continuing as we heard about in, in all places in the world, all around our country, and high school students and college students, the work of, that Jesus did as he's making an end of his adversaries, it's continuing, and God is still at work doing that. The, the, the work was promised that Christ is going to do, we saw it in Romans 8 and 31 through 39. You know, the, a passage that we know, this beauty that God is not against us anymore, and if God is for us, then there's no one who can be against us. There's no power. There's nothing that can take us from the love of God in Jesus because he's for us. He's for us now. And, and the only re- way he could be for us is for Jesus to get rid of all the adversaries that we're talking about here in verse 8. You and I live in a, a terrible world of sin and death, but it won't always be the case. That won't always be the case if you if you were to read the book of revelation verse or sorry chapter 18 it lays out the judgments that are actually poured out on Assyria and Babylon and it says here you go Babylon now it's time to get what you finally deserve right and and obviously those are symbolic of all the evil in the world it's coming chapter 18 of revelation and then when you go to 19 you kind of see that those who have found salvation in Christ get to rejoice in that moment that, that justice has been done, and they experience nothing but the goodness of God from now on. And, and there is singing at the throne because of the just judgment and justice that has taken place. They re- rejoice as they see God in Christ make all things right. And so I just need to say, if you don't know the salvation of Jesus... If you're trusting in the things of the world, you are Nineveh in the book of Nahum. You are Assyria and Babylon in chapter 18 of Revelation. And this is a terrifying book if you don't know Christ. This is a terrifying book. And we would say don't continue to harden yourself and and, and to go down the path of Nineveh, go down the path of, of Assyria. It was meant to be a warning for all of us. Like we learned from the book of Jonah as we started this whole thing, it's never too late to cry out for mercy. God is always willing to listen. He is, his desire is always to forgive. His desire is always to show compassion and mercy. And no one is too far from, gone from knowing that mercy and grace of Jesus. And, and if you do know Christ, then, then the book of Nahum is actually a comforting book in a weird way. Right? A book that compares the hope of Christ's redemption versus the judgment of the one who's coming on the clouds, who will by no means clear the guilty. And we were in that guilty camp, but we've been moved into the holy camp because of Christ. And so it is a comfort knowing that sin and death's days are numbered. We can find a stronghold and a refuge in Jesus at all times. So that is the good news that we can cling to in a broken world, knowing that that Christ is conquering his adversaries. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can be reminded that, that sin and death's days are numbered. And as we sang it, we don't understand all of it and it's hard and it's painful living day by day in this place. Seeing the wicked prosper at times. Farther along, we'll know. Farther along, we will see an end to the sinful world. God, we are so thankful that you have, have put and are putting an end to your adversaries, and because of all of that, we can have hope as righteous and forgiven people in the blood of Christ. God, would you help us to have hope Father, would you work in our hearts that we would want to know you more and more as a result. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.